I just got back from the Smoky Mountains. Our family went this week as part of fall break. And for me, I grew up kind of like Laura described in flatland. I don't know if you know this, but West Tennessee is flat. Farmland, flat. We're right near the Mississippi River. And I, I grew up near the Mississippi River. And so I'm not awed by the Mississippi River. But I know people that were. I remember when I was up there, I think about this every time I go, that we had a, a when I was in high school, we had a girl move into our community and they, her family moved into our church from the plains of Texas. Her name was Kay Ellen. And she was the stereotypical southern accent girl from a farm in Texas. Just who she was. We, Our family loved Kay Ellen. We, Kay Ellen became part of our youth group, became part of my friend group. And we went to Ridgecrest for uh, centrifuge one year. And as we were driving into the mountains, I had this vivid picture. I still can see it in my mind. We're in a charter bus. We're going into the mountains. Kay Ellen is sitting two in front of me. And suddenly she jumps up, puts her face to the window and goes, what is that? And we had turned that corner. Do you know that that corner on the way to East Tennessee where everything's in the valley and you realize you're up a little higher and the mountains are in the distance? She had never seen a mountain in her life. And as Jeff and Laura kind of demonstrated there, sometimes we become so familiar with things that we're no longer awed by them. I read this week about a couple of guys named Richard Bass and Frank Wells who in the 1980s set out on a a desire, an expedition, that they were going to climb the seven tallest mountains, one on each continent. And so they set out and mapped the seven tallest places on each continent, the one tallest place on each continent, the seven tallest places on the earth, supposedly. Now there are some continents that have two or three that are taller than others, but they were going to go to the mountain that is the tallest on every continent in the world. And in the mid-1980s, around 1985, Richard Bass became the first man to accomplish the Seven Summit Challenge. Now since there, there have been a few hundred that have done it. There have been females, there have been males, there have been people that were senior adults, and there have been a 16-year-old that did it. It's been done in seven months. Can you imagine that? The seven tallest peaks in seven months. It's been done in a total of 48 climbing days. Where they just climbed straight up as fast as they could. And it's this challenge that I have no desire to take part in. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? But the men that do it, the women that do it, talk about the sense of accomplishment And the awe they feel standing literally on top of the world. Over the last few weeks, the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about who God is, what God is about, and this idea that we ought to be in awe of Him. And we're not doing seven weeks of this series, we're doing only four, but I want you to imagine that we are climbing four of the tallest peaks in all of Scripture, particularly in the book of Isaiah, four of the tallest mountains that give us a glimpse of the glory and the grandeur and the greatness and the goodness of our God. 
We talked two weeks ago about that God is awesome. And last week we talked about the fact that God is sovereign. And what we're trying to do over these four weeks is answer the four biggest questions that people have about God. That day-to-day living, even those of us that are followers of Jesus, particularly those people that are not followers of Christ, ask the question about God, first of all, is God in control? Is God in control of what's happening around here? As the world seems to be spinning out of control, is God in control? I literally stand up here on Sunday mornings and think the world can't get any crazier. And the next Sunday, it has gotten crazier. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Right? We have no idea, it seems, what's coming in the week ahead. I don't really want to know. But God, is he in control of this? Second question is, if he's... Able Is God able to do anything about what's happening in my life, what's happening in the world, what's happening in the universe? Is He able? I mean, we're talking about a monumental task here of God's ability. I saw this week that um, NASA, and I don't know how they make these estimates, but NASA now estimates there are ten times the number of galaxies in our universe than they originally thought. Anybody else see that? It's ten times bigger than they thought. When we thought we had it figured out, it's ten times bigger. You know what's probably going to happen in another few years? It's it's ten times bigger than that. Is God able to take care of all of that and still concern himself with if I'm going to be able to pay this bill this month? The third question is, even if God is powerful in control and God is able, is God good? Okay, it's one thing if he's got the power, but is he good? And specifically, does God care for me? Those are the four big summits we're trying to climb. The four summit challenge. And we want to stand on top of those in awe. And we've talked the last two weeks really about the first two. Is God able? Is God in control? We talked about God's awesomeness, God's sovereignty, God's ability, God's power. And today we're going to kind of shift a little bit to ask the question, is God good and does he care? If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. And this, by the way, is kind of like the Mount Everest summit on the goodness and the ability and the care that God has in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 55 has parts of it that are some of the most quoted portions of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to make a confession to you later, and I'm going to tell you specifically about one place that I have quoted from Isaiah 55 a lot, and I have quoted it out of context. Because we pick and choose. And there's some really good stuff to pick and choose out of Isaiah 55. But I want us to see it in the context of the entirety of this chapter. And this is the, the thing. You know, each week I've given you one point. Y'all get real excited about that till you realize i got about four or five subpoints, right? There's one point to the sermon this week. And this is the one point. This is it this week. God is amazing. All right, say that with me. God is amazing. And we're going to talk about why Isaiah 55 shows us that. And here's the first thing that we see in this passage. In Isaiah 55, we're going to read through this together. But Isaiah 55 tells us that God is amazing because He gives abundant satisfaction. God is amazing 
because he gives abundant satisfaction. This would be a great sermon to take notes on if you've got it in the margins of your Bible. On your worship folder, there's a place on the back. God is amazing because he gives abundant satisfaction. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, says this. Come. Now, I want to stop before we even get going because I want to tell you something. That's not a good translation of the word that is there. Okay? Come is not the force that's behind it. So you might have a different word there, maybe in a translation you're looking at in your Bible besides come. Ho. Now, why do you think they changed it in modern translations from ho to come? Because nobody knows what that means. We don't go around saying that to anybody, right? But the word there, ho, H-O, everyone who thirsts, the idea behind it is that it is a plea. It is God crying out in a plea to us saying, if you could just get what I'm about to tell you, it would change everything about your life. If you could understand what is here, it will radically transform how you think and how you act. But here's the deal, all right? Here's what I want to tell you. The problem is, I'm going to give you some stuff today that you already know. And you are very familiar with. And the problem is, when we become familiar, we don't stand in awe. And so, from the very beginning, God is saying, Ho, listen, come, find out if you could just Get this. If you could sit still for a minute, if you could focus in for a few minutes, it could change your life. It's an earnest plea. And so I'm asking you today to put on the lenses of a first-time viewer. B.K. Ellen on the trip to the mountains. Be Laura and not Jeff in the Smokies. And ask, what does this mean for me? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physical thirst here. He's not talking about actually being thirsty. He's talking about everyone who has a desire for something more. Let me ask you a question. Who in life has a desire for something more? What percentage of human beings desire something more than what they have just in the material things of this earth? 100%. And so when he says, come everyone who thirsts, everyone who thirsts is everyone. It's you, it's me. It's all of us that long for something more. The book that kind of inspired my thoughts on this particular a sermon series and the desire to do it. And the writer who actually wrote a good portion of what Teresa did as a monologue is a guy named Paul Tripp. And if, you, uh, if you've been spurred in any way to think about things in a different way or you would love a good book to read on this, there's a book he's written called All. And he says in his book that when it says that God has placed eternities in the hearts of all men, what it means is God has put within us a desire to see something greater than we have, greater than we are, and the, we are constantly in a pursuit to fill that void with something else. He says, come. You ever been thirsty? 
Like really thirsty. Not like your child gets to a ball game and decides they have to have the $5 soda thirsty. I mean like really thirsty. And when you're really thirsty, Coke, milk, Pepsi, none of that satisfies like water. The writer here, God speaking through Isaiah, is giving a picture of a guy walking down the streets of the ancient world in which Isaiah inhabited. And in the ancient world, they didn't have taps in their home. They didn't have water fountains in the hallways. They didn't have easy access to water that was clean and good and pure. It was very, very scarce. And what he pictures here is a guy walking down the streets of a water-starved people with bottles of fresh, clean water saying, Come, if you want water, I've got it. You imagine walking in the African communities where they still, women still walk five miles a day with the pitchers on their head to get the water in the morning and in the afternoon and the evening for their family. Can you imagine if someone walked down the streets of those towns and offered water to whoever would take it? The picture here is of God doing that for us. And he anticipates right away that they're going to have some objections to it. And he says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has money, come buy and eat. He says, listen, you don't have to pay for this. Everything God offers is free. You cannot earn what God is giving away here. And the reality is, if you can't earn it, that means you can never be too far away from it in order to receive it. That God intends for every single person to take and partake of the water of life that he offers. You can't earn it. You can't buy it back. You can't pay God back for that. Now, some of you are just wired that you want to pay everybody back and not owe anybody anything. But when it comes to God, you can't. And he's offended if you try. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, okay, that it's Christmas time. Some of you may have to go back a couple of years or decades or Close to a century. I won't name names, but imagine being a child around the Christmas tree. And your mom hands you your Christmas present. And it's beautifully wrapped. And the bow is tied. And everything is just perfect. And you begin to open that up. And as you open it up, it is the most exquisite gift you have ever gotten. And the next thing you do is you reach into your pocket and pull out a wallet and say, now what do I owe you for this? You're not going to do that, right? And is your mom going to take that very well if you do? If she does, it's not a gift. Right? That still happens today. My parents still spend too much money on me. Christmas time, birthdays. But you know what would be offensive to my parents if I said, I'm not going to take your gift. Or I'm going to pay you back. Now the roles are reversed in some ways. There are times when I buy things for my parents or we go out to eat and I take care of the bill. And it's a fight. Like it's an it's a all out fight. Some of you are like, if you fight over that, I'd be like, sure, whatever. But there are times that I say, I, don't, I do not want you to take care of this. It would offend me if you do. It's my gift. God looks at us and says, 
You don't have to have anything to receive the satisfaction that is in me. You just receive it. And then there are those that will even say, well, God, I like, you know, water's good. It's okay. But I, I would prefer something a little more. A little more substantive. You know, water only satisfies for a moment. I, I want something more. And so he says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God says, listen, what I'm offering here is not just plain water. It is like a banquet for the soul. Yesterday, we got back from Pigeon Forge on uh, Wednesday night and Thursday, three of my kids went to West Tennessee to be with grandparents. They have they haven't been able to be with grandparents for a while. So it was Susan, Eli, and I. Susan and I both had some conferences here in town. I had one at Lifeway. She had one for school. And then Eli, just because he's older and wanted to hang out here, all right. And so Susan and Eli left yesterday morning to go spend the rest of the weekend with family in West Tennessee, and they're going to church in Jackson with uh, her dad today, and and all of that. Which meant that I was left alone yesterday and I had two primary tasks. One was to watch the football game, which did not turn out very well at all. Can I get an amen in the house from the Vol fans? All right. So did not turn out well at all. If you're an Alabama fan, I don't care. All right. <laughs> Didn't turn out well. Second thing was I had to figure out food for myself. Right. And so I started this thing years ago, and I don't, listen, this doesn't happen but like once a year where I'm at the house by myself. It's a rare occasion. And so when it does, I go to Publix, and I pick out the best-looking steak they have. And I get a baked potato and a salad and a single serving of some kind of dessert. And I go home, and I feast. Do you realize how much it costs for us even to cook steaks at home for my family? Like, well, I go to the bank and say, can you float me alone here, all right? But for me, one time, it's okay. And so last night on the grill, I cooked a pound plus ribeye. Man, that's good. <laughs> Baked potato, salad, and a little piece of chocolate cake. And I feasted. After the game, it was called angry eating, but it was still good. Okay? God says, when you come to me, okay, when you come to me, it's free. And it's the best meal you've ever had. He goes on to say this. So why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me, eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Now, we're going to play a little game real quick, okay? It's called Name That Person. I'm going to give you a few clues, see if you can name who this is. Okay, he was born, so it's a he. I've cut out half the population for you. You only got about three and a half billion people possible now. He was born July 26, 1943 in Datford, England. At the age of five, he met a friend named Keith, and they were friends in grade school, but then years later they met again at a train station, and Keith and his friend Brian and this guy decided to start a little band together. They began to perform around London and started to build a following that were there, and they were not really thought of in the United States till they had one particular song that propelled them to the top of the charts. His life has been filled with drug arrest 
and illegitimate children. And concerts where riots occurred that people even died. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Mick Jagger. I think we got a picture of old Mick. Look at Mick. Now, one of Mick's most famous songs is a song called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I try, and I try. It seems like it just goes on with, and I try, and I try, and I try. But I can't get no satisfaction. When I read what it says there in Isaiah 55, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for which is not satisfied? I thought about a life filled with drugs and illegitimate children and riotous concerts and seeking after everything you can imagine. When Mick was 45 years old, he said, I'd rather be dead than having to sing satisfaction again. Mick is 73, and this past summer he sang it at Nissan Stadium here in Nashville again. Like so many, he is ever searching, and as the Bible says, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. You see, God is amazing because he is the only place to find satisfaction in life. The only place to find the satisfaction in life that we crave is a deep, fulfilling relationship with God. And He offers it freely. Freely. Psalm 107 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He is filled with what is good. God is enough. God's amazing. Because he gives abundant satisfaction. And secondly, in this passage we see God is amazing because he gives abundant pardon. Abundant pardon. Amazing pardon. Absolute pardon. Look at verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. And he stops him in a minute. He goes, listen, come to me who are thirsty. I'm going to satisfy your need. And then he tells us really what the deepest need of our soul is, that he's going to make an everlasting covenant. Now, just a reminder, a covenant is not the same as a contract. A contract means that two parties agree on something together, and if one party decides that they don't want to be a part of it, or one party breaks the agreement, the other party can disillusion, do away with, get rid of the contract, and everything's broken. A covenant is based on relationship, and it's a relationship that cannot be changed by your behavior. And just in case we don't get that, he says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you, just like I did in my steadfast, sure love for David. David's entire life, is a testimony to the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. When he was young, a lion tried to kill him and God saved him. And then a bear tried to kill him and God saved him. And then a giant tried to kill him and God saved him. And then Saul tried to kill him and God saved him. And then he became king and sinned against the Lord in a mighty way. And yet Psalm 51 reminds us that God's mercy and grace flowed even more in those moments. God saved him. 
the deepest need of your soul is pardon. God gives abundantly. It's bigger than that, though. He says, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. He's saying, I made David a witness to that. And then he extends it. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. He says, it's going to go larger than that. It's going to go bigger than that. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. What he's saying here is, listen, the plan that God has for you is bigger, is wider than even it was for David. Because for David, he talked about establishing a kingdom. And he has established a kingdom of people that were his people. But he says it is coming and it is now when the name of the Lord shall be proclaimed among all nations. And the the covenant will be made with people of all nationalities, of all tongues, of all tribes. And we are a testimony to that. I don't think there's a single person in here born in Jerusalem. I could be wrong about that, but it's a pretty good guess. Just think about the extent of the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. I mentioned I had a conference downtown this week. It was a Lifeway leadership conference that I got to be a part of. And on Thursday, we, we, I was in a room with 1,000, 1,500 people. I don't know. This is what happened Thursday, all right? And y'all, y'all know y'all, I know y'all still see me as a young pastor and all that. I realized I'm getting older. Okay. I went to this conference and this is what I thought. It's too dark in here. I don't know why they won't turn the lights up. And they have, they have chairs that I can't sit on for very long. Don't they realize that I need some comfort here and my back's hurting and I'm like, what, what is that music they're playing? I, you know, I thought, when did I turn, I, what, what happened? In fact, I saw a guy from Union and I was thinking these things in my mind, but I didn't say anything because, you know, I'm not going to, last week I talked about complaining. You don't trust in the sovereignty of God, so you don't complain. And so I'm sitting there and this guy that I went to Union with saw me. Hey, how are you doing? He goes, when did we get old? He goes, they need to turn the lights off and give us a comfortable chair. I said, amen, brother, Amen. On Friday, we did have comfortable chairs. We had better environment. But on Friday, I was in a group that um, was after the conference. They did what they call coaching sessions. And in the coaching sessions, it really was just people getting together, talking about what happened on Thursday in smaller groups. And I sat down at a table and said, all right, let's go. You know, you sit down at a table. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew anybody in that room. So you sit down at a table. What's the first thing you do? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? So we went around the table, and they, uh, they asked me. I sat down last. They asked me, I'm Lyle, I'm from Goodlettsville, about 15 minutes from here. They go, oh, so you probably drove. I said, yeah, I drove. <laughs> like, I drove. I didn't have to think about hotels. I didn't think about cars. Anything. I just got in my car, out of my bed this morning, came down here. Go to the guy next to me. Where are you from? I'm from Ontario. Oh, so I guess you didn't drive. He goes, no, actually, we did. I was like, oh, sorry, for, sorry about that. Ontario, Canada. Seattle, Washington, Jinx, Oklahoma, San Antonio, Texas. That was our table. And I just sat there, and we talked the whole day. We had a facilitator that would do some instruction, and then we talked. The whole day we talked about what God is doing in those areas of the world. Literally from coast to coast, from north to south, from Ontario to San Antonio, it's harder to get farther apart. North America and Canada. I just talk about the breadth at which God is working. He says, I'm offering you to come. 
And it doesn't matter where you live or where you're from, what you're doing, how you got here. I'm offering for you to come. But there is a responsibility on our part. Look at the next verse. Seek the Lord while he yet may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that may have compassion on him and our God. For he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. But notice what it says at the very beginning of that. Seek the Lord while he may yet be found. I heard a pastor this week say this, that the hour of your conviction should be the hour of your decision. That you do not wait, you do not think, you do not interpret the signs. When God impresses upon you to do something, the time to do it is now. Genesis 6-3 tells us that the Spirit of God will not always strive with men. That there may come a time in your life, that there will come a time in all lives when the opportunity to respond to the Lord is gone. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of decision. If you are here and maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you have lost your all, you have lost your passion, you have lost your pursuit of God, today is the day of decision. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Do not put it off. Do not procrastinate. Seek the Lord while he may yet be found. And in there it tells us how to seek the Lord. It tells us exactly what to do. First of all, we forsake our way and our thoughts. Now, if you have a problem being called wicked, I'm sorry. That's what the Bible says, and it's true. Every single one of us in our hearts are wicked. Every single one of us in our lives are unrighteous. And so when it says the wicked and unrighteous, it's not talking about those people out there. It's talking about every single human being that has ever walked the face of the earth on their own are wicked and unrighteous. Forsake our ways and return to the Lord. It is what repentance is. It's forsaking my thoughts, my ways, my agendas, my ideas, and pursuing, returning, going back to the Lord. So what's holding you back? Believer, follower of Jesus Christ that has gotten so accustomed to Christ's mercy and grace that you have taken it for granted and do not live in all of it on a daily basis. What is holding you back? from forsaking and returning. Verse 7 tells us that when we do, He will abundantly pardon. Abundantly. See, some people think when they come back to God, they have this misconception about who God is. They think He's an angry God that's going to look at you and go, what are you doing? Why are you even coming back to me? You mean that after all that you've done, you mean that after all the things you've said, that you claim to be mine and you're doing these things in private, that you're doing these things at home, you're doing these things at work, you think you can come back to me now? Some people think it's an anxious God, that God's sitting there twiddling his thumb thinking, I just wonder when they're going to come home. Like the parent with a teenager out on a Friday night. I just hope they get home safe. I hope they're okay. I hope everything turns out all right. And some people think God's an ambivalent God. And, well, oh, you're back. That's good to know. I didn't really, didn't really notice you were gone. But the picture in Scripture we have is not an angry God. It's not an anxious God. It's not an ambivalent God. It is a prodigal God who runs after his child, who returns to him who pulls up his coat and runs to meet his son. 
See, here's the verse. I told you, I gave you a little spoiler earlier. I'm going to tell you a verse that I misinterpreted for a lot of my life that I use incorrectly. And it means, it's okay. What I say it means, it does mean. But in this context, it has a different understanding. Look at this next verse. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, usually when I preach this, in fact, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, I'm talking about the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God, the holiness of God, how he is separated from us, how he is different than us, how he is powerful and all of those things, which all of that is true. But in the context of Isaiah 55, what's the verse right before that? He will what? Abundantly... Pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. He's saying when I talk about pardon, I'm talking about something completely different than you are. You see, when we think about forgiveness, his forgiveness is not like our idea of forgiveness. When we think about forgiveness, we think, oh, who should pardon? And how much should I pardon? How often should I pardon? How many people should I pardon? We're in the mindset that, Lord, I like, should I forgive them? Should I, should I forgive them? Well, Lord, they really did something bad this time. Should I forgive them? Or this is the tenth time they've done something. Should I forgive them? God says, I don't think about that. Like, I just give the pardon. Charles Spurgeon said, God's pardon is abundant because it wells up from an infinitely deep fountain. Our sins may pile high as the tallest mountains, but Jesus' blood, like Noah's flood, drowns them all. When it comes to God and pardon, I saw this quote that said, A man with billion dollars does not need to count pennies. God forgives out of a billion dollars, and the pennies of forgiveness you need, he doesn't count when he disperses it. God's amazing because he gives abundant pardon. And in case we wonder if this can happen, he says the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, my forgiveness, higher than your ways. My forgiveness and thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Next verse. He tells us that sure, it's going to happen. There's another verse that gets used a little bit out of context. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth the sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the ear, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Now, so listen, just a quick thing here. Side note, extra, extra benefit here. That for a long time, scientists didn't understand how rain happened. They would have figured it out pretty quickly if they'd read Isaiah 55. The whole cycle of, you know, you learned it in school, but it's only like recent in history that we've understood that water gets absorbed into the clouds. The clouds bring the rain down. They didn't understand that for a long time. It's here in Isaiah 55. But he's, the point is, just as that rain happens, things come over and over again, so will be the word out of my mouth. It will come, it will come. And then he says this in the next verse. It shall not return to me empty. Now, in case you then put those two together. That's the one that often gets used. God's word shall not return to him void. We talk about the, when we preach the God's word that it will come back with fruit, and that is true. But here he's speaking specifically about the fact that he has promised to pardon if we return. If we forsake and return, he promised to pardon, and it is a done deal because he said it. Shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here's the last thing. God is amazing. Because he gives absolute delight. Now think about what we've talked about. He gives complete fulfillment, complete satisfaction. And he does that by meeting our deepest need, by giving absolute, amazing pardon. And when that happens in your life, you rejoice. Look at verse 12. 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, that sounds strange and none of us have ever seen a mountain clap or trees clap. But the point is that we are a part of the entire creation that is giving praise back to our Father. And when we understand, when we actually see what God has done for us in Christ, what God has done for us in forgiveness, what God has done for us in pardon, when we see that... We have no other response than joyous celebration because of what he's done. Do you know how you can tell if you've lost your all for God? Is if there's no joy in your life and you can no longer celebrate who he is or what he's done. When I was in Ripley, that's been a long time ago now. Y'all realize that? You used to talk about when I was in Ripley like a couple of years ago. It's been almost 10 years ago I was in Ripley. When I was in Ripley, I had a, uh, a deacon that one night we did a community outreach service. And in Ripley, they let us into the local high school. And we invited people from the high school to come and tell them we'll give them free pizza that night. And we had 400 youth show up to a church that averaged 250 people on Sunday morning. We were overrun with youth. Okay. And this deacon came in, and the deacon walked up to me. And there were some other issues he had, but he was particularly upset with the music that was being played in the sanctuary as the youth were in there. And I said, what, what's... I said, okay, okay, okay. I said, so just tell me, what's your real issue? Okay, I, I, I know that it's not music you like. I understand that. We didn't... He, he was a senior adult. I was like, this is an outreach for youth. This is not an outreach for senior adult. I understand that. If we were having an outreach for you and for your age group, which we will... This would not be the music we're doing. We're trying to, these are people that are unchurched. We're trying to bridge that gap so they can hear the gospel. I mean, we had that year in Ripley, a church that had baptized an average of 0.5 people in the last 15 years. Two weeks after that event, we baptized 15 people. So, I mean, we we were doing this and he said this honestly. You know, sometimes people say things that you're like, I don't think you understand what you just said. He said, they just look like they're having too much fun. But here's the truth. It's amazing what you think is too much fun when your joy's been stolen. I joked about the music at that conference I went to. They had a DJ on stage playing dance kind of music. At this, it's a Lifeway leadership conference. And I'm, I have not, that's, it's just not what I expected. Okay? There were more skinny jeans in that venue than I have seen in my life. But you know what I noticed? People were celebrating what God was doing. And there was a joy in that room. It means that the joy of the Lord will be so much in our lives that we will get out of character with what we normally do. Trees don't normally, mountains and hills don't normally break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall usually don't clap their hands. In fact, if you see that happening, you might inspect any medicine that you've taken in the last few days. But it means that we are out of character. And then he says this. This is it. And this is the end of the verse of the chapter. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. The thorns came from Genesis. 
When sin entered the world, thorns entered with it. The work became hard. The cypress was a sure and steady tree. Instead of the briar, same principle, comes the myrtle. And people that have joy, people that rejoice in the absolute delight that God brings, shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will never be cut off. See, Isaiah 55 is a summit, is a mountain that we climb to understand the goodness and the graciousness of God. And that He cares deeply about you more than you care about you. Because He cares about the deepest needs we have. To bring absolute satisfaction, complete pardon, and absolute delight. When's the last time you delighted in the Lord? Let's pray together.